Hello, and welcome to episode 84 of the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. I am Ted Newell, your host. Thank you very much for spending part of your day with me. I'm going to take a different approach to the beginning of this episode, so bear with me. At first, the meeting with the FDA did not start very well. The FDA heard the term artificial intelligence and were immediately skeptical. Then the Viz AI team hit the pause button and said this was about speed to treatment for stroke, not about doing a better job interpreting images. That is when the FDA team had an aha moment. The rest is history. What if your company could develop a product that reduces hospital stays by 2.5 days, demonstrates a 37% improvement at discharge from the hospital, and a 40% improvement 90 days after discharge? And what if this product resulted in a 38% improvement in speed to treatment for a critical condition? This life-altering technology is offered by Viz AI. That's V as in Victor, I-Z dot A-I. In today's episode, we Zoom travel to Israel to visit with David Golan, Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder of Viz AI. This is our fifth episode related to artificial intelligence and medtech. Not only is Viz AI an amazing life-altering technology, it is also a great story. While artificial intelligence plays an important role in their technology, David explains that it is only part of the total product. Now, don't forget that in the months of February and March, all new member dues for the MedTech Leaders community are being contributed to HerHealthEQ.org. And furthermore, I am matching 10 of these contributions. Membership costs about the same as four cups of artisanal coffee. Learn more at medtechleaders.net. Again, that's medtechleaders.net. Now check the show notes for links to David's LinkedIn profile and Viz AI website. There will also be links to me in the event you have questions or feedback. And if you like this podcast, please share it with a friend simply using the share link in your podcast player. Now, let's get together with David and learn about how Viz AI went from company foundation to clearance for commercialization in two years. David, Welcome to the Medical Device Success Podcast and Videocast. Thank you very much for taking time to spend with us today on this exciting subject of um, AI and all the exciting stuff that you guys are doing at Viz AI. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yes, absolutely. And just to get us started, why don't you, um, even though I've introduced the podcast to some extent, why don't you tell people what your role is and you know what you do at Viz AI and what Viz AI is? Um, hi, so, so I'm David. I'm the Chief Technology Officer and one of the co-founders of VizAI. And at VizAI, our mission is basically to increase access to life-saving treatments. 
And we do that by harnessing technology and AI to automatically analyze CT scans, identify pathologies, acute and also non-acute pathologies, and alert directly to the treating physician with the goal of facilitating a faster connection between a patient that needs a certain treatment and the physician that can administer that treatment to the patient. And by doing so, re reducing the time to treatment, improving patient outcomes, and making everybody's lives uh, better. That's awesome. That's a great thing to do. And, and it's amazing as people will learn as we get in further into this um, episode is how much you guys have done and how quickly it's, it's truly an amazing story. Um, tell me, a, just give me a story just to help whatever, what everybody's appetites, you know, give me a story about AI, whether um, it involved you or whether it involved a, um, you know, a customer of yours. Um, just tell me a story about AI and, and its effect. Definitely. So, so let, let, I'll, I'll take us to, uh, to Utah. Okay. Uh, in Salt Lake City and the surroundings where uh, the University of Utah is a customer of Viz. And they're essentially, they're a big center that provides uh, a lot of services to a number of smaller hospitals in their surroundings. And what happened there is that a patient, in that case, it was a police officer, uh, she, she had a stroke and she was brought in to one of the smaller hospitals where um, one of the first things they do for a suspected stroke patient is they put her in a scanner and they scan her brain. And the scan immediately goes to the cloud, analyzed by the Viz AI engine, which identifies a stroke and triggers an alert on the phone of the new interventionist, which sits at a different hospital in, in, in Salt Lake City. And they take out the phone and they have the Viz app. They look at the, at the app and they see the, the scan they immediately confirm it's a stroke. They jump into their car and start driving to that hospital while someone else is already texting and saying, hey guys, prep the patient, I'm coming in. And they arrive immediately when they are done with prepping the patient, they operate much, much quicker than they would have otherwise. And the patient essentially walks out of the hospital the same day or the day after, um, with all fully functional, all, all functions restored, full control of her body, and, and she's alive and well nowadays. Wow. And what would have happened if the Viz AI technology wasn't in place for that patient? <clears throat> what, what could have the outcome have been? Yeah, so the stroke in this case, stroke is the most time-critical condition in all of medicine. So every one minute of delay translates on average to 4.2 days of disability. Yeah. And an additional cost of like over $1,000 to the healthcare system. And of course, that's beyond the, the you know, pain and heartache of the patient and the family. So without this, what would have happened is that the patient would have had the scan. The good scenario is that the you know, medical staff at that hospital identifies that it might be a stroke they start calling in to the bigger hospital. They find a way, maybe they have a way to transfer images. They don't always have, do the, have a way to do that. They start discussing eventually, maybe they need to transfer the patient. They arrange for a transfer. You know, the clock is ticking and every minute goes by is 4.2 days of disability. And this is the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that 
for whatever reason, this happens more often than not, something is missed, there's a delay, you know, another car accident comes in at the same time, someone loses attention of the patient, the patient comes back from the scanner and nobody notices, um, or just, you know, the hospital is understaffed and full of COVID patients and everybody's like super tired and, you know, the patient may be completely missed. Yeah. And in that case, they eventually they, they fall out of the therapeutic window for stroke and they cannot get they don't get treated and whatever damage that their brain might have sustained sustained is is essentially there permanently and this could be you know full paralysis of half of the body problems speaking or complete inability to speak and so on so the the results of an untreated stroke are quite catastrophic for, for first and foremost for the patient and the family but also from an economic perspective you know, stroke is the number one cost of the healthcare system in the Western world because of these patients that, you know, they don't die. A dead patient is, is tragic, but relatively cheap, while a stroke patient might be, you know, requiring assisted living for 20 years now and costing hundreds of thousands of dollars. Let alone, I mean, on top of the, you know, personal strategy, the, the family who has to, um, you know, skip work to support them and the loss of, of, of and all that. So definitely, you know, stroke is where every minute counts and where, you know, our product that automatically identifies the stroke and connects the patient to the right doctor dramatically cuts down the time to treatment, increases the number of patients being treated and, and you know, improves patient care all around. And I think you told me in one of our past conversations that, a, a large number of brain cells dies every minute during stroke. What do you, yeah. what'd you say? <laughs> yeah. So the number is, is 2 million uh, oh, every, every, every minute. And that, you know, that, that is an average number, but this is, is sort of translating into an increased probability of uh, lifelong disability. So every 15 minutes of delay is a 4% increase uh, for a, for a lifelong disability. For essentially, this is, the difference between a patient who can take care of themselves versus a patient who can't for the rest of their lives. Exactly. Okay. Well, that's a great story. It's a great way to start to get people thinking about what we're talking about today and, and really the great story behind Viz AI and, and your own personal story. So let's, let's start with that. Let's go back to your education because, um, you know, you, you started your original track, you know, toward a PhD, but you weren't headed toward deep learning necessarily, at least for medicine. What were you headed toward? Um, yeah, so I, I completed my PhD in Tel Aviv University in Israel, uh, working in st statistics and machine learning, um, applied to genetics and, and healthcare, healthcare data, economic data, all sorts of different applications, mostly in genetics and genomics. Okay. Uh, and, uh, you know, very excited. I was very excited about taking, the, you know, developing statistical and machine learning models and applying them to real data with, you know, the goal of you know, gaining some insight and, and ideally helping someone do better at, you know, something related to the healthcare. I, I moved to Stanford for, for a postdoc in 2014. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as, as, you know, timing is everything in life. Uh, it was sort of the beginning of the big boom of, of deep uh, deep neural networks that was beginning to explode after 
AlexNet was introduced in the ImageNet competition in 2012. And in fact, it was literally the first time a class in convolutional neural networks was taught at Stanford. And I, I stumbled across it pretty, pretty randomly, but I said, you know, I, I want to hear what, what the buzz is all about. Went there, set, and, and, you know, within, I guess, two sessions, it was clear to me that this is something else. It's not like another algorithm that is going to marginally improve something. It is an entirely new way to do things that brings together machine learning and computer vision in, 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 in ways that we've never seen before. And, and that sort of really encouraged me to essentially drop the research that I was planning to do at Stanford and start sinking my teeth in, into this new and exciting domain. So, big, looking, so you made a big pivot right there. You, you took yeah. a class <laughs> and boom, you were, you were headed a different direction. Yes, yes. It was, it was, it was um, you know, fortunate enough that you know, all, all the people involved with, and, and Stanford in general is, is a very... Very welcoming for this type of, of uh, adventures, and initially I was looking for applications in genetics and genomics, which is sort of where I was, where I was coming from. Um, but very quickly I realized that uh, there's, there's there's more interesting applications in the in in the medical imaging in the medical imaging space, and started investing most of my time in that. And it was but just, you had uh, but you also had. You had your own medical situation. Yeah. So, so yeah. So that, that's true. So you know, as I'm a postdoc at Stanford, and so sort of, uh, I, I mean, I would say leading the good life because a postdoc life can be stressful sometimes. But you know, generally, you know, I have a wife and two young kids, and we're in the Bay Area, which is a lovely part of the world. Um, I do. I wake up one morning, and I sit on the carpet with my son. We're playing something, and all of a sudden, I can't uh, feel my left arm and left leg and i called my wife and was said hey 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 ronnie can you come over uh, you know take care of the kids i'll go lie down for a second and she looks at me and says um hey you know there's something going on with your face so i sort of stumbled to the bathroom and i look at the mirror and i see that i have um what i now know is called the facial droop where the left side of my face is sort of hanging uh, loose and you know the crooked smile looks something like this <laughs> and at, at that point we're like okay we're, we were thinking I'm having a stroke so we call 911 they come over they take me to Stanford Hospital um, well I'm very quickly thrown into a CT scanner and then an MR scanner and you know all along I'm like not super I, I I'm obviously super stressed, but I don't I don't understand what's going on. It actually took quite a long while before I was um, before, before the, the, the neuro the neurologist um, the senior neurologist was brought in and was sort of gave a definite diagnosis. Luckily for me, it wasn't a stroke. It was uh, what's known as a stroke mimic, something that manifests as a stroke, but it's not and it's reversible, and I'm perfectly fine. Um, I was discharged the day after, had a, a pretty bad headache, but that's basically it. And, you know, I told this story to, to, to a friend of mine, uh, for a friend, an Israeli friend who was also at Stanford. And he says, he, he hey, you know, I have a neurosurgeon friend who's here at Stanford. Um, maybe you can meet him and he can you know, look at your scans and tell you what's wrong and maybe help you out. 
And that, that neurosurgeon was, was Dr. Chris Mancy, who's co-founder and CEO of VizAI. Right. And we, we end up meeting and I, I you know, sort of tell Chris my story, um, just like I'm telling you now. And, you know, he looks at me and says, you know, David, you're, you're actually kind of lucky because nothing bad happened to you. You you're delayed for three and a half hours in, in the hospital, but nothing bad happened to you. I actually lost a number of patients on my operating table due to you know, this kind of delays. And he goes on to tell me a story about a patient where they actually, a patient who was hit by a car, um, got into the ED, they had a, um, a subdural uh, bleed. Yep. So blood is gushing into the brain, pressure is building up and slowly the brain sort of you know, crushing against the skull. And they need to, to, um, to do a bear hole, to essentially dig a hole to relieve the pressure. And it says, you know, we did such a wonderful job. We actually broke the department's record. So I remember we took a selfie the entire thing because we were so proud of how well we did during this operation and the day after the patient died, which is, you know, very tragic. And as, as we were looking into why, why she passed away, we realized that it took them four hours to get the patient from the ER to the operating room because of, you know, someone called someone that the doctor wasn't available. He was on the phone doing consultation that was not at all urgent, but the line was busy. And all this stuff that happens in hospitals that I guess many of us are familiar with. And, then, and I know, should say, and I should tell the listeners that <clears throat> this is Dr. Mency, right? Yes. That this is before Viz AI has been founded. So here the two of you are talking about these problems that you've seen or faced and like this one you just described with this huge delay resulted in the patient's death, even though the yes. surgery was successful. So I, exactly. I just wanted to make sure people have that perspective. So please go on. Yeah. So, so exactly. At this point in time, we're sitting um, at the backyard of this mutual friend of ours um, around the bonfire and, and just, you know, chatting. And you know, Chris tells me, you know, I can be, I realized at that point that I can be the best neurosurgeon in the world. And if I cut my operating time from 20 minutes to 18 minutes or 15 minutes, it doesn't matter at all if it takes four hours for the patient to get to my, my operating room. And that's, you know, when he moved to Stanford for, to the business school, so think about other solutions. And suddenly he says something like, hey, and I mean, it would have been awesome if we can identify these patients automatically and make sure that the right doctor gets notified. And, you know, I, I sort of look at him and I say, have you heard about deep learning? And we start talking about it. And then, and then we were sort of like Googling some scans with brain bleeds uh, on, on his phone. And, and, you know, I look at them and in a somewhat elegant slash naive way say, yeah, you know, I think, I think I can build something that would identify these. And at that point, you know, Chris looks at me and says, okay, so let's start a company. And essentially that's what we did. <laughs> let's start a company. Um, so, Let's see. I want to go back over my notes here a second. Um, all right. So here you are, a, a PhD student in Stanford and a neurosurgeon, and you're both temporarily there, and you're thinking about starting a company. Where did the nexus of the company come from? I mean, how do you do that? You're from, you know, 
a different part of the world. You're in the United States. Now you got to start a company. How does that happen? So, I mean, fortunately, I guess Stanford is a very entrepreneurial uh, place. You sort of, there's a joke there in the computer science department that if you've If, you've, uh, if you didn't drop out your PhD in computer science and start the company, you'll consider it a failure. So, I mean, <laughs> it's a very welcoming environment. And definitely, you know, in the business school, they definitely give you all the, the knowledge and tools to, to, you know, to encourage you to think about this. In so much that we were actually, um, Chris was actually taking a class with uh, Google's Eric Schmidt, where What you do during the semester is build the business case, essentially build a pitch for a startup. And then some, some students do a fake company just for the purpose of the class. And some people actually use it to build their business case. And at the end of the semester, Eric calls all his VC friends. They all come in, you give the pitch. And actually, you know, a lot of investments start at, at that. So it's a very, very uh, nurturing environment and very supporting for this type of Of, um, of work and so that's like on the operational side of actually starting a company and so on and on the I guess the AI side that's kind of a different track but it, what I was focusing on in my research back then in medical imaging uh, it's funny but if you go back in time and, and this would might, might seem absurd for the audience but take my word for it if you go back in time to 2014 2015, In the deep learning community that develops, you know, breaks record after record in, in computer vision, there's a consensus that this type of technology, it would not be applicable to medical imaging because you need so much data that you will never be able to get it, to get medical data, such vast amounts of data because of uh, privacy and HIPAA. And even if you were able to get it, Annotating it would be prohibitively expensive because you can't use like a mechanical Turk thing. You would need board certified radiologists to cost a lot of money. So everybody's thinking that you can't really apply deep learning to medical imaging. And essentially, you know, some of the research that I was doing was about developing ways and approaches that can yield good results with deep learning on medical imaging for relatively small data sets. Okay. So, so we, already, we had um, you know some idea or some feeling that this can be done even if you're not um, you know attached to a huge 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 huge, huge data set because the companies that were starting in this in this space were looking for partnering with huge hospitals or huge uh, HMOs and getting their hands on huge data sets and essentially it's, it's very very hard but we had a very good uh, Um, feeling that we don't need huge data sets to get started. We okay. can get small data sets and some creative approaches that we developed and, and, and move from there. So essentially that's what we did. You know, we started the company, uh, started exploring the, the clinical side, the applications, the regulations, and also building um, a, a network to collect data and starting building sort of the, the technical infrastructure of the company and you know, slowly but surely things have progressed and matured. So you had the, but you had the serendipity of, of making a pitch essentially to Eric Schmidt and his friends and having that support and having that kind of uh, support structure behind you so that you could move forward, that you could, that you could get some initial funding, that you could develop the things that you need to develop 
and start working on them, which which I think is an awesome, uh, another story within a story here. Um, and so Viz AI was founded about what time? 2016 or? Yes, mid-2016. Mid, uh, okay. And you chose strokes as your first target just because it is such a, a difficult problem. So um, I guess uh, generally speaking, yes, we will. Um, but but I, th I think the, the, the real answer is more complicated, more more complicated, and I guess more interesting than that. So okay, first of all, as I mentioned earlier, timing is everything. And 2015 saw a major change in the guidelines and treatment of stroke. So before 2015, mm -hmm. and again, just that's for the audience, a stroke. We're, we're talking about ischemic stroke, which is the most common type of stroke. It's caused by a, a blood clot. That essentially, typically generate the heart or the neck and flows with the bloodstream all the way up to the brain, where essentially it gets stuck. Uh, the vessel is too small for it to pass through. And it, it stops and it disrupts the blood flow to the part of the brain. The part of the brain that doesn't get enough blood essentially dies uh, quite, quite quickly. Up to 2015, the guidelines for stroke treatment, uh, we had one answer, one therapy which was a drug called TPA, that's uh, also known as the clot-busting drug. Essentially, it's, it's a drug, you put it in the IV, and it, it acts on the clot and, and, and disintegrates it. Um, it's, not a, it's not a super effective drug, it also has some side effects, it's kind of dangerous, but that was the only, um, the, the only thing there, the only, the only answer that medicine had to an acute stroke. 2015, was really the year where everything changed because that was the year that mechanical thrombectomy was approved as first line um, treatment for stroke. And mechanical thrombectomy is a very different thing. It's essentially, and in my mind, nothing short of magic. So through a small incision in the groin, uh, neuro interventions would insert a, a, a catheter, a plastic tube, navigate through the blood vessels all the way from the groin to the brain, reaching the clot and then mechanically engaging it and pulling it out. Okay. And that treatment in 2015, five different randomized controlled trials were, were stopped halfway because they were demonstrating that this procedure is so much more effective than, than the, the, the state of the art, which was, which was just TPA. And then all of a sudden, all hospitals in the world, in the US in particular, need to do that. But the big problem is that while TPA is relatively simple, again, it's a drug, you put it in the IV and that's it. Mechanical thrombectomy is a whole different operation. You need a, a room, you need machinery, you need technicians, you need anesthesiologists, you need the neurointerventionist, which is by themselves, they're, they're, they're like, at that point in time, a few hundred of those in the US. Right. And only 100 to 200 hospitals in the US actually have enough staff and the equipment. So all of a sudden, treating stroke is no longer a problem that happens in one hospital. You start, you need to start triaging patients. They get to the hospitals where they get the first line treatment of TPA, but then they need to be transferred to a bigger hospital to get the definitive treatment of, of mechanical thrombectomy. And that just creates such a huge logistical complication. I remember someone told me, um, early on, David, you need to understand stroke is a team sport. You can actually have 
two dozen people involved within the span of three hours in the care of one patient. Oh, one patient. Yeah. All those people, they need to coordinate, information needs to flow, and you know, they all do it by phone um, and other mechanism, pages and stuff. So 2015, the guidelines change, and all of a sudden the stroke world is, is scrambling to find solutions to get patients from the small hospitals to the big hospitals, do it in time, but not test patients at uh, what they call a futile transfer because that costs a lot of money. If you send a patient and they have nothing to do for that patient, they have to send it back. So definitely, you know, stroke is a huge deal. Again, most time critical condition, there's a lot of, of money involved. So, so, you know, there's a good feeling that, that there would be um, not only clinical benefits, but also a, a viable business model here. But the timing is also important. Like if, yes. if we had started this two years earlier or two years later, two years earlier, the problem wouldn't have been as, as, as severe. Two years later, maybe someone else would have come up with a, with a solution. Uh, so, 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 so that's one thing about stroke. And, and yeah, we sort of identified as, as you think about AI, generally in AI, bringing AI to healthcare, bringing AI to radiology. Again, we're not the first to think about that and we're definitely not the first to do that. And there's 20 years of, um, you know, products that support radiologists in reading scans and so on. But we did bring a new approach to this because prior to VizAI, most, most products were aimed at helping the radiologist at the challenging task. Mm-hmm. Right, so I think mammography is the best example. Mammography, uh, it's a, an image of a breast and you're looking for lesions, hopefully to catch breast cancer before it, uh, it becomes deadly. And it's a hard problem. And those computer-aided detection algorithms and devices that support the radiologist and you know, they suggest, hey, have you looked here? Hey, have you looked there? And so on. So we're taking the radiologist and trying to make them better at a very hard task. We uh, thought that, I mean, that, that's, that's nice and all, but we thought that the real power of AI is elsewhere. It's not about helping at a very hard task. It's about helping at a very time-critical task. Mm-hmm. So the computer is always on, always up, takes very short time to, um, to analyze the data and can connect it and you know, transfer the information to a physician who's at a you know, completely different location. So I'd say it's, it's even not about the AI. You know, we have AI in our name, but we don't consider ourselves even an AI company. We, we consider ourselves we're a workflow company. And right. you know, even if you detect the stroke, but you keep that information within the hospital, maybe that's not enough. You need to get information out to the other hospital. And maybe that's not even enough. You need to get, take it out to the field because maybe the interventionists don't call, they're at their clinic now, or driving, or the supermarket, or the, you know, the kid's soccer. So even if you detect the AI, but they don't have the app on their mobile device and they cannot view the app from anywhere, then you're not delivering the full value. So, so it's really about getting all that stuff together and identifying that it's, it's about you know, connecting, we like to say connecting the right doctor to the right patient at the right time. Yeah, because you explained to me 
the this workflow, which comes up frequently in these discussions about um, AI, which where AI is part of the solution, but the the workflow issue is so important. Um, and like you said, tw- you know, it's a team sport. Up to twenty people can be involved from, and you're talking. You get involved, like from the minute the person is um, possibly diagnosed and there's a suspicion, like almost in the like in the ambulance. Yeah, so, right? so in, initially, initially, our so first contact point was when the patient is scanned. When okay. they get the scan, and, and you know this is sort of an amazing, amazing moment in time because once you have the scan and the scan is stored on the computer, you know there's a sequence of bits and bytes somewhere that says this patient has a stroke or this mm-hmm. patient has a brain bleed or this patient has an acute condition. And again, unlike um, you know, mammography, where it's, it's complicated. Oftentimes, that's not really it's not really difficult to identify the bleed. If the audience would Google, uh, you know, head CT with a bleed, and you know, some pictures would come up, you will see. You don't need to be a super trained radiologist to identify most of the bleeds. But you know, the so so you know, and oftentimes people ask us. Is your AI more accurate than human? And say no. We're not more accurate than a trained neuroradiologist, but we're also we're not attempting to, because our goal is not to be more accurate. Our goal is to put the picture that tells the story in front of the person that can act on that story and make change and you know make something happen fast, fast, ideally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, now, one of the things that was really interesting in, in our conversation about this was, okay, you're founded in 2016, you got your, the clearance for stroke in 2018. How did, how did you get that to happen so quickly? Um, so again, like many things, I think timing, timing played an important role. Mm -hmm. So essentially we, we, um, we came up with this idea. We wrote it down and submitted it to the FDA. Uh, there was a process called the pre-submission. We essentially suggest something to the FDA. You say, this is what I want to build. This is how I think it should be regulated and so on. And, and then you meet them and you discuss it. So we fly over to, to Washington. Uh, actually, I bought a suit and a tie. It was the first time I, I ever wore, wore a tie. <laughs> and we fly over to Washington, D.C., uh, to meet with FDA, and we get in the room, and initially, they were very negative in the first few minutes. They did not understand at all what we were doing, and obviously, it's not their fault. It's us that we didn't explain ourselves well, but, but the, the point I'm, tr- I'm trying to make is all of AI prior to this AI in, in the realm of audiology was exactly that I was telling you about earlier helping the radiologist do a task that is hard, improving the accuracy by a small fraction. And, we'll, and they're like initially asking us questions about this. Is this going to increase the accuracy of the radiologist and so on and so on. And someone who said, hey, let's hold on for a second. This is not what this is about. This is about cutting down the times between the different hospitals. And then they literally had an aha moment. And I, I remember one of the, 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 the medical officer in charge of our, of our application was there. 
And then his eyebrows went up and said like, oh, this could be really good for patients. And that really changed the tone of the conversation. And at that point they said, listen guys, we understand the potential value of this for patients. There's nothing like it. So we would have to write a new regulation and define a new type of medical device, a new category. Eventually this came to be what's now known as computer-aided triage devices. Okay. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. Yeah, but, but from that moment on, FDA was super supportive and collaborative and a very actively um, worked with us to make this happen. And then, you know, the whole process of getting um, the FDA clearance from our first interaction till the clearance was, I guess, nine months. Which, again, it's, it's, it's almost unheard of for, yes, for, what, absolutely. for, for a you know, completely new thing. And it was such an excitement for FDA themselves that they actually they put out a press release when this was cleared, not us. <laughs> <laughs> so we were like, we were, we were almost surprised. They, they, they let us know. They called us and said, we're going to put out a press release in a couple of hours. But, <laughs> you know, it was a very, very exciting time for us. And in a sense, this, by the way, has opened the door because, because you create a new regulation, it has opened the door for dozens of other applications of right. AI in healthcare that are now sort of leveraging this, um, this regulation to get, to get FDA clearance. So it's now, not only good for this, it's good for, for the entire industry. Exactly. You guys are pioneers in so many ways. Um, so one thing I want listeners to understand is that typically, or I shouldn't say typically, but right now when you have AI as a part of your system, um, you take it to a certain level and then you have to stop that. And that is what gets cleared by the FDA. Um, but then as you improve it, as you get more measures from, you know, because now you have like four indications that are approved. Is that correct? Yeah. All right. So you have four other, you have three other indications beyond stroke where you're assisting people with workflow and with, with, with AI as part of it that um, you can renew it. You can like, I don't know, the equivalent of writing a letter to file, but you're essentially updating your, um, your filing with the FDA quarterly or half year or whatever it might be. Is that correct? So, I mean, it depends on the use case. There's actually, there's, there's guidance from FDA that says, I think it's called something like how to decide whether you need a new FDA submission or not. And there's like right. a decision tree. So if, if you, and, and first of all, you're absolutely correct. When you submit something to FDA, you essentially freeze it. And a lot of times people ask, does, does your AI continue to learn as we send more data? And the answer is no. You know, what's, you know, a version is frozen. And then as you develop something new, you essentially ask yourself a set of questions that dictate whether you can uh, release a new version, as, as I said, using uh, internal documentation. You write a letter to file. You document the testing process, and there's a lot, there's a lot of work involved, but it's internal. Versus um, if you have to go to FDA and engage them, submit a, what's the five ten k and get the clearance. So, for example, a new indication is by definition you have to go to FDA. Right, and so, so you, you mentioned as we were chatting earlier, we uh, uh, 
two weeks ago received a new FDA clearance to alert on brain aneurysms. Right. Right. So this is an algorithm we've been working on for a very long time. Before that, we were not allowed to alert on, on brain aneurysms. Now we are allowed to alert on brain aneurysms. We're allowed to go and sell out this, sell this functionality out in the, in the market. Other things, other changes to a product um, may, may be less severe, then you can do that internally. So, so I mean, it's a, it's a process. And um, as, as, as the company grows and matures, sort of build processes around how you, you make these decisions and it, it becomes part of the SDLC, the software development lifecycle. And what's amazing also is the the technology adoption uh, by the marketplace because this was definitely a disruptive technology. It, you know, I'm sure doctors could see the sense in it, but they're really busy people. It's hard to get people's attention um, to to a new w- workflow pattern, a new way of doing work with other hospitals and so on. They might have just been used to somebody being brought to them. Um, how, you know, how how did you how did you, um, and you talked about working with a couple early adopters. How did you get this going so that the, the message got out so that you could break through this technology adoption lifecycle curve and, and keep going and get more and more people involved? Because I think you told me you're in a th- over a thousand hospitals for stroke. Yeah. So, so, so nowadays we're, we're, we're just crossing the one, 1,000 hospital um, number and processing a patient every 36 seconds on average. Oh my gosh. Uh, so that definitely, you know, very happy with the growth. But, and I think, I think to really answer the question, I'm, I'm taking a step back and again, two more sentences about like how VisAI sort of grew as an odd bird in this, in this space. So again, we did not invent the idea of applying AI to CT scans. This has been around for a very long time, but most companies, most products were geared towards radiologists right and radiologists they're actually very very technologically advanced people they sit in the dark room they have six screens they have a bunch of applications they use voice to text to dictate the reports and they use a ton of these these softwares and and bring like if you bring another one it's like okay it's another one it's a young company it's immature and actually if you go to rsna that's the, 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 the big conference every year of the Radiology Society of North America. Huge conference, 50,000 people. Like this is the big event of the imaging community. There's so many AI companies there. There's actually an AI pavilion. Huh. You go and there's like dozens and dozens and dozens of AI companies. This was very, very different. And I think a lot of regret goes to Chris. Uh, you know, Chris is a neurosurgeon. And I'm not an imaging person. Most AI companies, they have like a radiologist or sort of an imaging person and this still dictates their DNA. Chris was essentially designing the product that he would want as a neurosurgeon. And when we went out to conferences, we didn't go to RSNA. We went to the International Stroke Conference. Mm-hmm. And we would not pitch our product to the radiologist. We would pitch it to the neurointerventionalists. And... Two things happened. First of all, we were the only software company in the conference. Okay. And, you know, you, 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 super sexy, only software like AI, nobody heard about it there. Actually, you know, I remember in 2018, January, before our clearance, first time we had like a big, you know, a booth at the International Stroke Conference, 
Chris gave a talk on AI in our booth. And the hallway was so packed, the fire marshal came in and said, guys, you have to clear this. Those, you know, those, you're blocking the eyes. So, I mean, but that's, that's a curiosity. What's really important is that we're targeting the neurologist, the stroke neurologist, and the neurointerventionist. And for these guys, they wake up thinking about stroke, and they go to bed thinking about stroke. It's like their biggest thing. So the fact that we had a product that essentially had one use case, but this is, this is, is it's not like a radiologist that does a million things. And then if you bring them one use case, it's like this small part of the practice. Yes. So these guys, this is A, everything they, they wake up for and go to bed for. And also, remember, 2015, things have changed. We're now two years later. These guys are in pain. They have a real pain because they are being woken up 10 times a night. I have a patient with a stroke. They have to go to their computer, connect to the VPN, connect to the Citrix, upload the scans. It takes 20 minutes. Look at the scans, make a decision whether they want to transfer the patient or not. And this is, if they're lucky, if they're you know, on the road in their car, they have no way to access the images. So these guys are literally hurting. And we come with a solution. And you know, the new interventionist, I remember 30 seconds into the pitch, they were like, okay, I understand what you're doing. I need this, I want this, let's make this happen. Yeah, that's a great example. Like if if you would go talk to um, Jeffrey Moore, who's the author of Crossing the Chasm, he would say that you perfectly found a niche place to cross the chasm to a, a pragmatist in pain is what he calls these people. Totally. Yeah. Totally. As opposed to thinking, well, it's a, it's a radiology thing. We'll go to the radi- radiology Congress and try to, to break our way through there where you'd have failed and maybe been delayed for a long time. Instead, uh, your instinct was correct. And uh, well, that's a great example of how you broke through the, the chasm and got across and, and got such wide acceptance so quickly, which is uh, also just a great, another great story within a story. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's funny. You talked about, I, I when early in our conversations, one of our other conversations, I, I talked about, you know, the, the newness that both you and your co-founder had to the whole thing. And you said that naivete was a, was a blessing in some oh, respect. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. So I, I think definitely, definitely, um, a lot of things that that we didn't know we were very unsophisticated in many ways, and um, so it gives you this belief that you know the finish line is right around the corner, and then you turn the corner and there's another corner. Like, okay, it's probably <laughs> right around that corner, and I, I, I you know, I, I literally, I remember. Um, Chris and I sitting in a coffee shop uh, talking with the regular, we had no idea about, for example, FDA process. And at some point we thought it was literally paperwork you uh, submit. So we were on a call with the person who we like, like, hey, we're looking for someone who would fill the paperwork for us and submit it. And then they said, well, guys, you know, that's not how it works. Like, okay, T- tell us how, how it does work. And all of a sudden, you know, you find yourself Peeling another layer, another layer, another layer. <laughs> so, so, and in many things, this was the case. But I'm, I'm a firm believer that you have to, uh, 
at least at least for an early stage company it, it's a good it's a good attitude to be to be quite naive <laughs> yes and one and one other thing I want to cover before we end is um and it goes back to the fact that stroke is a team sport I'm sure aneurysm treatment is not too different and a lot of the things you're you're tackling and you're talking about workflow and you're talking about a large number of people involved that have to become familiar with the whole workflow program that you guys have devised to save lives to to shorten this time period and to save save functions save lives whatever it may be um, that involves a lot of training and I was really impressed with um, the customer success model you have. Tell me again, like you have about 300 people. Tell me again about how many people are involved in customer success. Yeah, so so definitely a huge number. Uh, I, I think, I don't remember the exact, I, I think over 30 people, like 10% wow. of the workforce. And we, we have a very, very high touch um, team and a relatively low, you know, accounts to uh, CS rep. Uh, and, and and I'll tell you why it's, it's yeah I, I I always like to joke at paraphrasing Tolstoy, every hospital is miserable in its own unique way, and <laughs> and it's really like that. It's, it's it's every hospital has different workflow issues, different pain points. They're good at that. They're bad at that. Sometimes they have um, sometimes the, the radiology uh, practice is run by a different organization, so they have no way to influence it. Sometimes they own the small hospitals. Sometimes they don't. So many, many, many moving parts. And you know, essentially, what the CS team, the, the the customer success team, do is they go there and first of all they listen. And they listen to you know how they this hospital does the workflow, what are the pain points, what are the goals, and so on. And the Viz offering, there's more than one way to use it. Okay. And they work with, with the, the hospital to see, hey, let's see how we use what Viz has to offer to build something that would support you. And for example, in some, and again, you know, being the AI guy, sometimes, sometimes it's a pinch uh, to say, but there are some hospitals where they don't need the AI component. They, because they're essentially saying, okay, I have, a, I have a lot of residents. I will put a resident in charge of manually reviewing the scans on your app in real time as they come and push a button if they see a stroke. <laughs> okay. Right? So, you know, the AI takes, uh, you know, three minutes to process the scan. The human takes a minute and a half. They do it themselves. And that's perfectly fine. Sure. And they say, what we need is the ability to view it fast. We need the communication. We need the... Other places say, you know, during nights and weekends, we rely on a teleradiology practice that's slow and unreliable. So we do need the AI, uh, but we don't need the the you know the viewer as much because you know we're all in the hospital. We have really great uh, connectivity and so on. So then it's working with them. You know they're your friend uh, at Viz. They have they're actually building wonderful personal relationships with uh, um, you know with the with the CS team, and they're helping them to use the Viz offering properly. And actually. A fair amount of the CS team actually jumped over from the other side. There were stroke nurses uh, who were using Viz, and someone said that you know, hey, there's an opening at Viz. Let's let's switch sides. Oh wow, okay. Yeah, so, so quite a few. I think I think five or six are, are like ex 
these users <laughs> that I said, okay, I'm, I'm going to, you know, I've implemented this in my system. It was such a success. I'm going to teach other systems how to work with this AI to, to improve stroke care. Well, I think the important message of that part of the story is just how customer success has become a, an integral part of med tech these days. And, um, and it can really make or break a company as opposed to just having a salesperson out there with a sales personality that gets a product sold and sort of walks away or isn't necessarily listening to what the account needs to get done. You know, they have somebody that really wants to make sure it all fits together, that all the parts work yeah. together is really, really important. And I think that's a message that I really want to, um, you know, to share with the listeners because you guys have done just such a great job at it. As we get close to wrapping up, um, any any thoughts about how other med tech leaders can be um, better prepared to work in this environment, whether where AI might be part of a, a component of what they do or and or uh, part of their product? I mean, I, I, I think you know AI um, in some way has a bad reputation. I, I don't think it's uh, for a good reason. I think some some uh, unfortunate uh, statements like AI would replace audiologists and so on. Uh, I don't think I don't think that that someone who approaches this domain needs to understand uh, the, the challenges and there are specific challenges to developing AI, especially in maintaining AI. It's not like one and done. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm de- you know, typical software you develop it and you have bugs later, but generally speaking, it's out there and you move on to develop the next thing. AI uh, takes a lot of effort after you get the clearance and after you sell. It's like a, it's a, it's a long tail or a red queen problem where you have to sort of continuously improve just to stay in the same place. Uh, and I think this is something that, that is super important. But maybe the most important thing is that, you know, I, 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 wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't start an AI company. You know, find a problem, build a product, if something can be done with AI, wonderful, do it with AI. If something can be done in a different way, do it in a different way. You know, our customers, they don't care. And one of them told me, it's funny because a lot of people ask me if they're objecting to AI, if it like creates a bad sentiment because radiologists have for, for many time, many years had negative sentiment towards AI. So the, the neurologists, they couldn't care less. Someone told me, I don't care if it's AI or if you have like a small elf in my phone who looks at the scans <laughs> and, and I don't care as long as you're alerting me on a stroke patient. Uh, you know, I don't care. So I think it's really about that. It's about starting from the problem or the pain point right. and not being married to a technology or a solution like ha- having a hammer and looking for nails. I think that's, that's really the best advice for, for leaders. Find a problem, find a business case, find a business model, uh, and then, and then if you need AI, great. It is AI is being rapidly commoditized. It's getting easier and easier to develop. Uh, the challenge is finding the problems. Right, right, and applying a solution correctly. Anything that you would suggest in terms of people um, like reading or or um, studying to uh, better understand the AI market and. Um, and deep learning or how, how those things could apply to technology? Uh, 
I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of stuff out there. There's definitely some uh, uh, you know blogs and newsletters that yeah. that ma- marriage and I I can send some links over later. Some yeah, please. Are, are, I can't remember right now, but people who who marry well sort of the technological, clinical, and business aspects of things and give a good perspective uh, and how the market is evolving and so on. Uh, yeah, that'd be great because I'll include them in my um, in my um, show notes. Yeah, and and I think that there's a good uh, a good cluster. That I, I think it's MIT that, uh, around you know developing medical devices and AI and so on that touches on on reimbursement and business models and also regulation and AI and and all that. So I think you know everything that sits at the inter- in, in intersection and acknowledges the complexities of this domain. Is is a good place. Is a good place to start and read and learn. Well, thank you for staying up so late to talk to me. You know, all the way from Israel. It's uh, it's gosh, what time is it out there? Almost midnight or something? Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and you got a smile on your face. So I mean, this is my pleasure. That it's really fun, uh, David. You know, thank you so much. It's uh, it's been great having you on, and this is a great story. And I'm really looking forward to edit editing the editing this and getting it out to the audience. Terrific. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm, who knows, I might follow up in a year or something. But, um, By all means. Okay. <laughs> Another factoid I didn't share earlier is that their stroke product results in 16% more procedures, which equals additional medical device usage and revenues for the hospitals. One of the beneficiaries of the Viz AI technology are the companies that make the thrombolectomy devices and the other products that support those procedures. This is a great example of the fact that you may not have AI in your product, but the usage of your product could be indirectly affected by artificial intelligence. You need to think outside the box to constantly be looking at how future technologies will affect you and the products you represent. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. In fact, David had me break my record in note-taking during editing. Seven pages, a new record. Thanks again for spending time with David and me today. Now go win your week. <laughs>